0: Happy Friday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by our colleague, Sarah Longwell, at the end of a long week that, I don't know, Sarah, do you feel, I feel like things that actually, this is, it, it's ending on a, on a good note. It's been a, it's been a normally shitty week, but it's ending a little bit, you know, on an upswing.
1: Is that because the cyber ninjas had to, had to say that they no, didn't find says... any bamboo in the ballots or oh, is that, on. is it, that what's got you in a good mood?
0: Is this is this like the most delicious breaking news story that we've had in a really long time? I, mean, we, I feel like we've been in a good news desert, and then we get this story that the cyber ninja audit not only confirms that Joe Biden won, but that he won by an even wider margin <laughs> than originally reported. I mean, I'm I, sorry, I just got to take a few minutes on this, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, this was not uh, what it. I saw that Trump. Put out a statement last night being like, tomorrow's the day, Uh, seemingly unaware that the report had already been leaked, uh, showing that Joe Biden had, in fact, won the election. And I don't know about you. I was surprised they didn't find any bamboo in the ballots. I know that they were looking for it, uh, but it just didn't seem like it didn't seem like they found any evidence that.
0: Well, who got to them? I mean, apparent. I mean, was, some uh, something I just I am really I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to the various forms of spin. I, I want to hear MAGA spin on this. I want to hear the anti anti Trump spin on all of this. Uh, I am going to in, enjoy this uh, because I'm, I'm sure who will be the first columnist who said, well, all of you people who questioned the cyber ninjas and called it a fraud. At, what do you have to say now? I think it's a race between National Review and, um, and and the Washington Examiner going with that spin, right? Where does the cyber ninjas go to get their their apology? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: that's true. I mean, I, I do think uh, based on this sort of draft that's out, some, that there's going to be a bunch of ridiculous claims in there. That yeah. well, the as we when we counted the votes, you know, the votes were. Yeah, like in terms of that the votes were were right in terms of the count, but that doesn't mean that the election was run well and here's all of our criticisms and here's all the shady things that we right. still want to throw in there to cast out on the election. And so I don't think it's gonna be, you know, a complete and total exoneration uh for, but, uh, for they'll throw
0: chum. Yeah. They'll yeah, throw they'll, chum still, the they'll still do that stuff. Well, see, but th- this is the the whole pattern where you have all of this rhetoric about, you know, questionable fraud and uh, not definitive and uh, et-, et cetera. But then when you get to the actual raw numbers, they don't back up any of the rhetoric. It's kind of like what we went through when you had, you know, the Rudy Giuliani's of the world, you know, claiming that there was all kinds of things that were wrong with the election. But the moment they stepped into a courtroom and had to say it to a judge, it was like, yeah, no, uh, there's there's actually no, no fraud. So the numbers are there hand count shows that Trump received lost Maricopa County by 45,469 votes. The county results showed him losing by 45,109 votes. So they spent, what, $6 million, the overstock guy, on an audit that showed that Trump lost Arizona again.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I think the, the, Besides the delicious dunking, that's that that's fine. But the, the, the really the the important thing here is that I do think it will have a chilling effect. I mean, on some of these other states that were planning on going forward with audits of their own.
0: Do you? Do I, you I don't really? Know. I mean, well,
1: here's the thing. So the they're they're messaging tools, right? The audits right. are messaging tools. They are meant to just create an atmosphere of the idea that there was something wrong with the election. I do think a lot of these Arizona officials like as the as this it was the fourth audit I believe in Arizona but it did start to get very embarrassing for Republicans as it went on and you started to see uh people in the state legislature you know Jan Brewer even came out and he, you know it forces certain Republicans in the states to say no, Joe Biden won. I mean, it actually creates some difficulties. Yeah. Um. And so I don't know. I'm not. You're right that they may go forward with it because it's not like these are the the most sane or reasonable people. But there is downside.
0: Oh, there's there's definitely downside. But uh, of course, th- this would have a chilling effect in a in a in a world in which shame actually mattered, <laughs> when <laughs> when facts actually made a difference in all of this. But uh last night what well, was it uh, trump is asking demanding that texas now perform an audit he won texas by 600 votes and yet he wants greg abbott to have a forensic audit of texas or at least of areas where democrats vote so i, I yes in, in 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 you know earth 2.0 where we are rational good faith actors who are capable of shame this would be embarrassing and it would slow the momentum in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and elsewhere. But we don't live in that world, Sarah.
1: We don't, but I, I would just like to throw out, uh, give two cheers is, is maybe three cheers. What What's the most cheers that make when you're really being serious, three cheers.
0: Uh, yeah. Three cheers. I'm, I'm okay. Fun. So I want to give two. three
1: cheers to, uh, William Gates, not that yep. Bill Gates, yep. but another yep. William Gates down in yep. Arizona, as well as Steven richer, um, the Maricopa County supervisor these two Republicans have been, from the start, the loudest voices uh, pushing back against this fraud that's been going on in Arizona. And they've been heroic. Uh, And, you know, unlike uh, some more nationalized figures, um, they haven't kind of, you know, Stephen had like one video that went viral of him pushing back. But generally, people don't know who they are, which, why would anybody know who the mayor count uh, Maricopa <laughs> County supervisor is. Those are not typically names that become nationalized, uh, but they have been true heroes and steadfast throughout this, telling the truth. Um, and uh, without some of these local officials, I mean, you know, this, uh, we're probably going to talk about that Bob Kagan piece in the Washington oh, yeah. Post a little bit we later, are. but at, at one point, he sort of talks about that that thin layer that stood between. Uh, you know, what Eastman wanted to happen and Trump wanted to happen in terms of just total usurpation of the election, uh, the, the lair was this like small group of of brave people that you've never heard of, basically. I mean, most people hadn't heard of Brad Raffensberger or, or uh, Langeveld there in Michigan, right. uh, who was – and those people were the ones that kept us from that fate. And it's people like Stephen Richer uh, and William Gates. So um, just wanted to throw out a three cheers for them, five cheers, all the oh. cheers.
0: Well, I okay, think this is a really important point because ultimately you do need to have Republican officials who are willing to stand up against this i, I get in some of these debates with, with people who are saying, "No Charlie what why do you keep talking about Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney? They are not the solutions because they're still conservative republicans etc no i'm 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 sorry, you need you know ultimately, if you're going to save this process, you're going to have to have Republicans saying no, um we are willing to admit that we have lost." And and I think that's one of the real big tests. And you know, you mentioned the, the the Bob Kagan article, which I want to get to because he he argues, and and this is a must read if I, people have to go read this thing in the, in the Washington Post. And he says our constitutional crisis is already here. This is not something that we're you know we can anticipate in four years. Can I just read a little bit of it? Please. The United States is heading into its greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War, with a reasonable chance over the next three to four years of incidents of mass violence, a breakdown of federal authority and the division of the country into warring red and blue enclaves. The warning signs may be obscured by the distractions of politics, the pandemic, the economy and global crises. And by wishful thinking and denial, um, you know, hey, memo to Russ, do that. Uh, But uh, about these things, there should be no doubt. First, Donald Trump will be the Republican presidential candidate for president in 2024. The hope and expectation he would fade in visibility and influence have been delusional. Uh, Second, Trump and his Republican allies are actively preparing to ensure his victory by whatever means necessary. Trump's charges of fraud in the 2020 election are now primarily aimed at establishing the predicate to challenge future election results that do not go his way. And I think that's exactly right. Sarah. Yeah.
1: When I was JVL and I were just talking about this on the secret pod, that this, this column, which is epic uh, and, and so much of it is things that we already sort of think and say, but it was so clear, so clarifying. Uh, but it made me feel seen. Because, you know, we talk about Bill Crystal is alarmed. Uh, I have always felt like we are underreacting to this moment. And, you know, yeah. on the live stream last night, uh, we were doing a lot of beating up on Democrats for the way that they are treating this moment as kind of politics as usual. They're having all these policy wrangling, uh, you know, fights. And uh, I just, I feel like somebody needs to, re- like, underscore that we are actually in an ongoing emergency. Right. And 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 focus our attention on that and I think that's what Bob Kagan did so well with this article. And the other thing that he does, I mean because he does sort of take democrats to task for that, but he also, you know, goes after these sort of the good republicans uh and I think correctly even people like Mitt Romney who I who I love and I mm-hmm. think has behaved as good as an elected official could, uh, on the Republican side, uh, or, or he is the best, he's the absolute best. Uh, and yet totally insufficient to the moment, totally acting as though, you know, he can still kind of just stay on the lawn, stay, stay a good Republican by, by treating it, uh, as though it is business as usual. And you fight, you have your normal partisan fights with, with Democrats, but this, this idea that there, that Kagan lays out of, there's a, there's sort of an, a legitimate way in which Republicans are undermining democracy through normal political battle. And then there's an extra legal and illegitimate way they're doing it by, you know, cheering on the people uh, who, who participated in January 6th, refusing to have, uh, to do any oversight or have a commission that gets to the bottom of it. Uh, you know, all of the things they do at the local level to lionize the people who participated in January 6th. And that those two things exist in concert where the legitimate hand, the right hand can pretend like it doesn't see what's going on in the left hand.
0: Yeah, I mean, to underscore this sense of emergency, um, I linked in my newsletter to this uh, survey out of the University of Chicago, which says that uh, 21 million Americans say that Biden is illegitimate and Trump should be restored by violence if necessary. Uh, In June of 2021, nearly one in 10 Americans said that using force to restore Donald Trump to the presidency would be justified. Okay, so that's only one in 10. But do the math on that. That is millions of Americans. This is dangerous. And I think, you know, part of, look, there are people out there who genuinely have been drinking the Kool-Aid and believe that the election was stolen. Um, and, the, the, you know, it, it said, uh, believe the big lie, probably think there was bamboo in the ballots in Maricopa County. But then there's this whole class of cynical Republican elected officials who know that it's all bullshit and yet are throwing the boob bait to the Bubba's who think that if they just sort of go along and they and they and, and they appease the the base that they'll get through this but they don't know the beast they're feeding. They don't know the damage that they're doing. Or maybe they do and they just don't they, they just don't care.
1: Yeah, and they do what I think is the blocking and tackling. This is always how I sort of felt about the anti-antis yeah. which is they they saw the same problem that you did. As a never-Trumper. Right. It's not like they saw the different world. They just decided that they're, the way they were going to operate with that information was to say that the other side was worse, to be mad at us for calling it what it was, and to do all the necessary uh spade work, the blocking and tackling, so that all of that horrible stuff we were seeing going on could, could go on unfettered and just move forward. And that, to me... Has always been the the worst part of all of it, because those are the people you. If 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 during Trump's era, there was a moment where people could have rejected it, where the elites could have refused to go along, um, but but Kagan fingers very accurately, uh, you know the the rich Lowrys, the National Review types, who basically looked at their readership and said. We've either got to feed this beast or we've got to walk away from, you know, or the enterprise can't succeed uh, because the electorate has changed. And rather than leading, rather than staying with the position that they had held only months earlier, they decided to feed the beast and jump yeah. in. And that's made all the, the the bad difference.
0: So before we get to the our, our rank of punditry about Dems in disarray, which feels so tired and everything, there's just a couple more things on, on this, this January 6th, which... I, I, look, this is this is not about the past. This is about what's going on right now in real time, in plain view, and is is setting the stage for something even worse coming up. I, I, I do believe that. OK, so here's some developments in the last 24 hours. Um, you have the House January 6th committee issuing subpoenas for Trump aides, including Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino. Uh, Cash Patel. Uh, th- this seems like a good development. They're being very, very aggressive. Uh, they they've learned the lessons of slow walking this from watching how the Trump White House has uh, has behaved. And then we get this report that the Biden White House is leaning toward releasing information about Trump and the January sixth attack. Now that would set off a legal and political showdown, but. I tweeted out yesterday. Do it. Absolutely. This should not be a close call for the Biden White House. If you have information about what was going on in the White House in January 6th, release it. And, and I, I think those would be major developments. So I'm cautiously optimistic that they're that we're going to get uh, closer to the truth and to keep this uh, in, in the public eye. But we know how short our attention span is. And of course, once again, we live in a world without actual shame or consequences.
1: Yeah. And we also, I mean, regardless of what the reality is, um, I mean, I, I don't know what else you need. Like the one of the things you say that you're in a good mood, we're finishing off the week with, with you know, the Cyber Ninja report coming out, confirming the election results. Okay. But what, what we saw this week, the, one of the things that's actually made me the, the saddest and most alarmed, because I have been pretty pretty freaked out this week. And one of the things was that the Eastman memo came out. Yes. It is a Six-point plan, like just right there in black and white. About, in
0: writing. They put it in writing. Not Here's high our plan for criming, right? This is,
1: this is how we do it. And we know that, that Trump was trying to get people to actively do it. They were trying to implement it. and But for a couple people like Mike Pence and a phone call to Dan Quayle, it might have happened. And the fact that it came out this week and nobody talked about it in the mainstream press. Not Thank nobody. You. I cannot no. believe how little attention it got. I mean, I've done two uh, focus uh, groups with swing voters since then. No one's heard about it. No one knows what we're talking about when we say, so have you heard about this memo uh, that shows that Trump was trying to undermine the election, you know, Eastman memo from his lawyer, anything, anything, ring any bells, just blank looks all across. And that's because, what, ABC, CBS, and, and none of them uh, covered it. People aren't treating it as though it is the Bombshell, smoking gun—that it is. And so, um, look, I—I I want every I subpoena. Told, I want way, all I this totally, information totally to come did. out. Yes. I'm just losing confidence that people haven't just baked it in. And this is this is why the Kagan piece is so exactly right on. There's this something is happening psychologically to us where we're incapable of seeing just how dangerous all of this is. We're just not taking it seriously enough.
0: Okay. So I, I am i am totally with you. And I've been tweeting out, I am amazed this has not gotten more attention because it is a memo showing how serious their attempts were to overturn the election. And I'm more and more convinced that Donald Trump woke up on the morning of January 6th thinking that there was a real chance that he was going to be reinstated as president of the United States. And I guess the media kind of the too cool for school approach is like, dude, we saw that we, we, we covered it. Right. I mean, we all knew that he was cooing. So can we talk about the missing blonde girl story again or something? I But it is, it is kind of amazing. Um, I just have to have a one little gripe here because I, I made this point last night on, uh, on television that uh, this story about this memo, a prominent legal advisor to the president, prominent member of the Federalist Society, laying out a scenario to nullify the presidential election, to overthrow the election, should be on the front page of newspapers across the country. And this retro-mingent hack uh, who works for, um, what is it, the Media Research Center, whatever, name is Curtis uh, Hook, who's actually too dumb to really be dishonest, but he goes, he put out a tweet, you guys, Charlie Sykes is here to tell you that he's upset the news media aren't spending more, more time filling up page one of newspapers with stories about January 6th. Yes, he really said this. Well, no, Curtis, I was talking about the Eastman memo and you knew that. But anyway, that, that's, that is my gripe. That is my gripe. Um, but I, I, I was concerned about that as well. And so I wonder and I think the, the point you're getting at is that even if the January 6th committee comes out with more bombshells, even if uh, we do find out more stuff uh, w- that was going on on the TikTok from within the White House, the media will go, "Yeah, it's old story, right?" Can, you yeah, know.
1: it's sort of it's it's also just that I think that we shouldn't wait. Is what I mean. Like, when you say, like, okay, they're moving fast, they're moving aggressively, like, there's subpoenas, I guess part of me is, like, I can't believe how few subpoenas there have been. Mm. I can't believe how little, you know, of a, how long everything has been taking from start to finish. Like, When Trump issued his pardons, I can't believe how everybody just kind of shrugged like every every piece of of criminal activity and uh, grifting and total corruption has just washed over over
0: us. (laughs) Yeah, those things were completely corrupt. They were in broad. See, this is the thing, though. They do it in broad daylight. So people totally if you had discovered it in some other way, it would be like, oh, my God, this is massive. But he does it again, in public, and you're right. The, the Roger Stone pardon, the Steve Bannon pardon, in themselves, they should have shaken people, but it was like, it's Tuesday.
1: That's right. Trump does a president, a, in a normal universe over there on your Earth One, or whichever one is the real one, yeah, uh, uh, or, or whichever one's the alternate one, uh, Trump was doing something that in that world would have been presidency ending every week.
0: It is every week, <laughs> And but that's it, the, yeah.
1: the, we're so desensitized to so much of it. Then people know what happened on January
0: 6th, at least. Oh, we, just and need so- to, we need to move on, go to more slow journalism. I'm, okay. So would you would you, like, would you like to play my, I have an even scarier scenario game with me?
1: <laughs> okay. No? Yeah, I guess. Yes.
0: Okay. So uh, 2024, there's a 2024 election, uh, plays out roughly like 2020. Uh, and Congress has to meet- to certify the results of the election. Who is presiding over that session? You, of course, know the answer is the vice president of the United States, who is, we believe, Kamala Harris, right? Yes. Okay. Now, let's imagine that for some reason, God forbid, uh, President Biden does not is not able to serve out his term. And Kamala Harris becomes the president of the United States, let's say, in 2023, okay? Okay, I'm just playing the game. Okay, yeah. so she she's the president. Who is the vice president of the United States? Doesn't she pick? Would uh, they
1: they wouldn't pick someone?
0: Yes, they would. And then what happens? Then that person, as every school child knows, has to be confirmed by a majority vote of both right. houses of Congress. Now imagine you have Kevin McCarthy in charge of the House after the midterms, and imagine we're just playing a game here. Okay, I'm not saying it's going to happen. And imagine that you have Mitch McConnell running the Senate. Is it at all conceivable that a Republican Congress would refuse to uh, approve anyone that Kamala Harris would pick to be Vice President? Well, of
1: course, it's conceivable. Okay. We've seen them do it with the Supreme exactly, Court. So. Exactly.
0: So you have no Vice President of the United States. So who then, when they count the electoral votes in 2024? would preside over that process? Hmm, because there's no vice president of the United States. The position is vacant. It has been blocked by Republicans in Congress. The answer is, because I checked with the Senate parliamentarian earlier this morning. The, is it Chuck uh, Grassley? Yeah, well, it could be. See, this, yeah, it would be the president. That's, that's it's, good.
1: It's the pro temp, right? Or what it the... is,
0: You are exactly right. It would yeah. be Chuck Grassley who who would be, you know, fresh upon re-election. <laughs> okay, <laughs> by the way. Okay, is it ageist to say that it's nuts for an 88-year-old guy to announce that he's running for re-election to a six-year term? Is that crazy? I mean, what is what is this? It's like the, we're going to be run by, what? I don't know.
1: I cannot tell you how much I want to be a United States senator because I want to Get. know what it is about this job that makes one be willing to do anything
0: there at all must cost be, oh, to hold on to it. Oh, they—they—they they, they must have good massages or something. So, anyway, in the story of of our future politics, which will be known as Tales from the Crypt, <laughs> 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 you have Chuck Grassley up there. So, I'm just pointing out that lots of bad things can happen. So, I just, just you know, my alarmist um, scenario is that, is that whatever you've sort of come up with in your mind, there's probably something that it's even more dysfunctional. Okay, so do you want to talk about the uh, Dems in disarray punditry?
1: Yeah, I've got. Um, uh, I'm. I've. I've been quite uh, alarmed by the Democrats uh, because I'm I, as 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 alarmed as I am about Republicans. Somebody has to be in a position to stop the Republicans. Yeah. Right? So we need somebody up to the task. But you, please, segue us in.
0: Oh, oh you're going to like this segue. Okay. I, I I just want this is this is going to be a, a segue for the ages. All right. <laughs> So I am looking at the most recent piece by Amy Walter from the Cook Report, who's explaining why she thinks Democrats are ultimately going to pass both the the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the bigger reconciliation bills. And basically, she says, if they fail to do so, it's only going to add to the perception that Biden lacks a firm grip and a steady hand of leadership. And for Democrats who worry that Biden's declining fortunes are dragging them down, failing to give him a victory will only make things worse for both him and then a midterm election is a referendum on the president when he flops. So does his party. And Amy Walter, I think, is absolutely right. And by the way, you just did a podcast with her, didn't you?
1: Oh, I did. We you should talk about I, that at some point. See,
0: did you see what I did there?
1: I did. Oh so, well, well, I but 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 I, we should take her point, the point she's yeah, making in this yeah. piece, uh first, and then I'd love to talk yeah, about the okay. podcast. But this um so I, I hope she's right. Uh I hope she's right about the the Democrats, you know, getting it together, and probably she is. Yeah, um, not
0: losing their minds, not 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 basically taking a hammer and smashing their foreheads with it.
1: That's right. Uh although I have never understood the politics of the big reconciliation bill uh i haven't understood the incentive from the republican side i mean when you get 19 republicans including mitch mcconnell to vote for a bill you run with that bill you take that win you pocket it and uh why these you know sort of the the far progressive wing of the the, the the democratic party is insisting That it be tied to a reconciliation bill for 3.5 trillion. Not only did they know Republicans won't support, but that they know the moderates in their own party won't support. To me, was just uh, like what I don't. I I don't know what game they're playing there.
0: Well, they're playing a game of chicken, and, and I love the punditry that says well, you know three point five trillion is not a lot of money. I mean, the real cost is six trillion dollars, and you're kind of looking around and going, "Okay, guys, seriously, you know that people can hear you talking. You, you, there are people out in the world. Yeah, you know, one of the points that I've heard you make is is also that you know, I, Dem- Democrats are convincing themselves that they have to pass these massive spending bills in order to win elections. Uh, trust me. No one. Okay, what percentage of the voters could tell you could even tell you what's in that three and a half trillion dollar packet? It's so big. It's so unwieldy. They have no actual messaging for it, do they? I mean, it's just like it's it's crammed with stuff. So these bills are too big to take credit for. Like, Like they're just so
1: big that the only thing you do is actually take a hit. From a lot of swing voters who are like, "What are you like? Why are we spending all this money? It's freaking us out. We're worried about inflation. We're worried about the the debt and the deficit, which is something that is still on a lot of swing voters' minds." Uh, and at the end of the day, there's you know you would be so much better off passing like three sort of right. darling priorities for Democrats and being able to message hard on them than passing these massive bills where no one knows what's in them
0: right so let's say you 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 want to push through an extended child tax credit which is wildly pop well I think it's wildly popular. maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, force an up or down vote on it, spend a couple of weeks messaging it, explaining this bill, building support for this measure, but they're not doing any of that because it's all crammed together. So, I mean, what are you hearing in your in your focus groups about this? Because my sense is that the Democrats are not getting credit for, for this, this money. In fact, people are focusing on the fact that they're just spending a shitload of money and it might lead to inflation. So that, in fact, while Democrats are convincing themselves they need to spend as much money as possible, it's not playing as well with swing voters as they seem to imagine. They're getting zero credit for the okay. swing voters that I'm talking to.
1: Uh, And, look, I understand the theory of the Biden presidency, that they are going to come in, they are going to take big swings, spend a ton of money in their minds, materially improve people's lives, and that that is going to draw back to the Democratic Party all the voters that Joe Biden is used to appealing to. White working class voters, you know, the everyday working person, like this is his, you know, I'm from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Like these are people he's used to appealing to. And I think that they, like something that is endemic in our politics right now, fail to understand how much things have changed. Those white working class voters who belong to unions who used to be economic Democrats, they are now cultural MAGA Republicans. And those voters are voting for Republicans over things that have nothing to do with money. They are doing it because of critical race theory and Dr. Seuss and uh, lots of other things tied to to race. Um, and that the voters who Joe Biden, who really sort of put him over the edge, which is black people and college educated, uh, you know, suburban white white suburban voters uh, that are that are quite a bit more moderate. Uh, a lot of those voters aren't as comfortable with these massive spending bills uh, and would much rather he be focusing his uh, political capital in other places. Uh, And they are also, you know, they they look at what's, you know, right now, look at what's happening on the border. Uh. You know, Joe Biden is taking, it's not exactly a Trumpist uh, approach to the border because he's not demagoguing it, but he is, rather than sort of talking about how do we how do we resolve this problem with compassion and with you know the the, the bigness and vast generosity of America like because we want people to come here and uh, we want to figure out a way for a path to citizenship and for people um, who are persecuted in other countries to come to America that's who we are uh instead you know the optics of of sort of lassoing Haitian migrants at the border uh Trump would have owned that and loved that and leaned into that. Um, But instead, Biden's going to get that pincer hit from Republicans who are saying, look at this crisis at the border. You can't handle it, as well as Democrats who are like, what are you doing? This isn't what I wanted from you. And so I just think that they have a theory of the case uh, and and voters that they're going to appeal to. Like, I think part of the reason he wants to be tough on the border is that they look at the numbers and they see that a lot of, you know, majority of Americans are very worried about immigration, but his voters want him to handle this a totally different way, not in a Trumpy way. Um, So I I just. uh, Some
0: of some of his voters, I mean, this, this is this strikes me as also reflecting the diversity of the Democratic coalition—that the mm-hmm. that while Republicans are essentially driven by ideology, Democrats are this this unwieldy coalition—and and so part of that that uh, that Biden coalition, you know, does want there to be something quasi-like open borders, quasi-like opening, welcoming, emphasizing, you know, compassion, humanitarianism—but a good chunk of that uh, that constituency also is looking at that, saying, "This is crazy." We can't have, you know, 10,000 Haitians just, you know, huddling under bridges and, you know, coming into Texas and things like that. You, you got to do something about that. You do need to send them back. We can't take care of all of that. So that also reflects that. I don't know. Just they, there's it, It's a complex, maybe insolvable problem, but also politically, he really is stuck between these numbers, aren't they? I mean, you, you, you know that whatever he does, there's going to be a constituency. He's in his own party that's going to be unhappy with him.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I I just, I think that what people expected from sort of the compassionate, the compassion pitch that Biden made is that what they'd be seeing at the border are images of Americans giving uh, these migrants blankets, food, uh, and treating them with, you know, humanity before saying like, but I'm sorry, you cannot come in, or like, here's the way to start the legal process. Uh, and then they also, I think, want to hear from Joe Biden, what is our plan? Like, what is Americans what is America's vision around immigration? Um, but nobody wants to do that. Everybody's just trying to figure out how to handle, because we're in sort of this constant crisis. Um, and I think that this is, you know, one of the things uh, that's just it's tough for Biden. And this is we're lurching from crisis to crisis,
0: and and and, and yet there's an opening here because, and, and I am slightly obsessed with with, with, with this. Uh, I, I have spent twenty or thirty years writing and talking about things like you know critical theory and you know where where it becomes illiberal, where it be, you know identity politics, um, it, you know is is so reductionist. But on the other hand, we're at a point now. Where there are folks, influential people on the right, like Tucker Carlson, and I'm sorry to say Charlie Kirk and others, with no blowback whatsoever, who are openly embracing white racist themes like the replacement theory. I mean, Charlie Kirk goes on radio, whatever it was he was on yesterday, calling for basically armed militias to protect the white demographics of America, and Tucker Carlson is, you know, talking about how they want to replace. Legacy Americans with with non-white people in order to win elections. I mean, this is stuff that used to be confined to places like you know the Daily Stormer, and now it's on Fox News. And as far as I can tell, Sarah, there is no pushback in the Republican Party at at all, which means that the Republicans are becoming—it's becoming more and more normalized to embrace. A, just a the, the hardest core white identity politics that I can remember seeing since the 1950s. That ought to be a moment for Democrats to a clarifying moment, but I don't sense they, they've seized it yet.
1: No, I mean, this is uh, this is uh, I'll do my whole spiel on this, which is that you know, because Democrats have a lot of policy things that they affirmatively champion. They spend their time trying to message on that and push their agenda forward. And because Republicans do not have many policy agenda items that they want to affirmatively champion, they spend all of their time defining Democrats by their most extreme members. They do incredible, high-level narrative work. And they've taken the squad and they've made them famous and they've defined the entire Democratic Party by the squad. Democrats, conversely, on the right... There's a guy named Paul Gosar. He's a congressman from Arizona. He regularly goes to white nationalist conferences and speaks. Uh, there is Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's Louie Gomer. Uh, there's Lauren Boebert and Madison Cawthorn and Matt Gates. Uh, and there are just so many of these. I mean, Jim Jordan. There's just so many of these. Like the 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 crank side of the Republican Party is now. I mean, a hundred and. Sixty of them refused to certify the election. Like the crank side is the mainstream of the Republican Party, and yet Democrats have failed to adequately define the Republican Party as too extreme to govern. And that is a bit. That is what has to happen going into twenty twenty two. Is that that there's people have got to get serious about trying to tell America who and and Republicans are going to help them out because Trump's going to show up. And he's going to endorse people like Herschel Walker, who you may have seen today. Oh, Mitch McConnell is, is warming too. Uh, like Eric Greitens, who tied a woman up in his basement, photographed her, blackmailed her, uh, and he scammed a veterans chari- charity. Josh Mandel, there in Ohio, um, you know, uh, lighting masks on fire and generally saying insane things. Um, you know, those those people should be you should be able to Todd Aiken them in one big you know swoop and say the party's lost yeah. its mind. But instead, they're fighting with each other over the dome in Israel and whether and this is where just to go back to the point on immigration, this is where I just wish you know I I, I think that if Joe Biden or I I do wish there was somebody sort of younger and more dynamic at the helm who was kind of pulling everybody together and saying guys, we have an emergency with the Republican party and we are all going to sit in this room and we're going to hammer it out behind closed doors. And we are going to, we're going to figure out, you know, what we can, and we are going to present a united front for democracy. Uh, and, and, you know, just, just, and cause I think that one of the things that I think is, is happening when you say like, well, he's got a, Joe Biden's got to balance these things. That's true, but he's not articulating to us, the Americans, his no. plan. He doesn't articulate to his party, their plan. Like, and this is this is, I think, the frustration from people like us is just what we need right now so desperately is something that looks like competent, clear leadership. Yep. And instead, it's disarray.
0: OK, so a couple of points here. You got me, you got me going here. Um, the the success of making the squad the face of the Democratic Party is really extraordinary because I think we got a glimpse yesterday about how small their influence is and how isolated there are. No, you had a group of progressives who somehow decided it was a good idea to to scuttle funding for the Iron Dome, um, which, by the way, is strictly defensive. If Israel did not have the Iron Dome, more Jews would die, but also more Palestinians would die because the only alternative then— to shooting down the rockets would be go and and have a land invasion and kill lots of people in order to take out the missile launch. So anyway, so they 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 cut out billion dollars for Israel's, you know, defensive uh, iron dome, you know, from the stopgap uh, spending bill. They brought it back up as a standalone measure and the vote was 402 to 9. Just eight Democrats voted against it. You know, you have people like, you know, Representative Jamal Bowman. Um, you have Rashida Tlaib and others and other fellow travelers who went along with all of this. But they certainly do not represent the mainstream of the Democratic Party in any way. And yet, what is the difference between I mean, what is the delta between the Madison Cawthorns and the Matt Gateses and the mainstream of the Republican Party? You know, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that it's it's the, 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 to, to make the progressives look like they represent the, the democratic party seems you know grossly and easily, I mean, grossly in, uh, inaccurate and dishonest and easily refuted by votes like yesterday. Um, but the Democrats have not succeeded in, in pointing out these crazies. Now you mentioned Herschel Walker, which is you know this guy is there's and on earth 2.0 there's no way that he would get close to a republican nomination for US Senate he's you know he's been involved in, in so many crazy things including you know the russian roulette stuff and the various scams and now Mitch McConnell is warming to him and you raised the name of Todd Akin and and you I know you you and Amy Walter talked about this on the podcast you know there was a time when if you said something crazy now Todd Akin was running in what state Missouri Missouri. he was running against Claire McCaskill, and he talked about what was it? the legitimate legitimate rape. rape. legitimate rape. Okay, it was one phrase talking about legitimate rape. And that was considered to be disqualifying. And there were a couple of other incidents, you know, throughout the you know earlier part of this this, this century where U.s Senate candidates blew their entire candidacy up by saying one or two really stupid things. And I was really struck by your discussion with Amy Walter on your new podcast, which I strongly recommend, about whether or not the Todd Aiken effect even works anymore, or whether politics has changed so dramatically that a politician who said something like that now would suffer no no repercussions.
1: Well, we we know that that's true. Uh, we know that that's the case. Um, I believe JD Vance said something yesterday. Yes, just uh, yesterday. About yeah. it being inconvenient for women to carry their rapist child to term. Inconvenient. Uh, I sounds inconvenient. Sounds like sounds like yeah. yeah sounds like, and and you know th- and this is the kind of it reminded me like I was thinking about this last night when I saw that comment that that would normally be disqualifying, but we've now gone through four years of trying This is um, so actually in the in the podcast I have Bill Kristol on. Um, uh, next week, when the episode drops on Monday, and one of the things that I talk about there, listening to these voters who are who are sort of normalish people who were really on the fence about voting for Trump, but either went third party or ultimately did vote for Trump, and they were sort of explaining um, explaining why, and you can see how desensitized. Like these are voters who would have been scandalized, uh, you know, ten years ago by something like that. But Trump has totally desensitized them to, you know, shocking phrases or sh- shocking opinions and ideas. I mean, I was doing a focus group with swing voters, and I was asking them about Herschel Walker in Georgia, and uh, it was actually the, it was a different moderator. The moderator said, uh, well, have you heard, you know, that he's had some mental health issues? He, he talked on the Howard Stern Show about why he played Russian roulette with himself. And does somebody who plays Russian roulette uh, with themselves, with the bullet in the chamber. Does that give you pause, uh, about electing that person to the U S Senate? And these were people who voted for Biden, mind you. Uh, and one person said, well, he must keep on winning. Uh, and the other person said, (laughs) that's pretty funny. And the other person said, (laughs) uh, well, uh, I don't think he'll do that while he's Senator. Uh, he'll probably stop doing that. And like, probably. I just think this is the kind of thing that has – where we really have – our entire culture has become so filled with insanity that people have built up a tolerance to a place where the kind of thing that Todd Eakin said that got him – that helped him lose in a place like Missouri, I don't think – unless the the Missouri Democrats find themselves a Republican – a moderate Republican to run on the Democratic side – Eric Greitens not only might win the Republican primary because Trump will endorse him, uh, he might very well be the next U.S. Senator.
0: Oh, but he's not leading in the in the polls yet, is he? I mean,
1: what happens when he gets Trump's endorsement?
0: Yeah. See, this is what's interesting. I was actually trying to make a list of the most blowable Senate races this year. Um, You know, the. Where you would normally have a, an, an easy shot at holding the seat you know, places like Ohio, um, in Missouri, the Republicans could blow these seats. Democrats, I think, might blow the Senate seat in Wisconsin. But that, of course, assumes that the rules are, are, are somewhat understandable, that there's no way that an Eric Greitens could possibly win a general election. There's no way that that somebody who has been as deplorable as Josh Mandel could possibly win a general election. But that may not be true anymore. I mean, things are so polarized. It's it's like trying to figure out how far our political culture has devolved, and I sense that we we haven't hit bottom yet, uh, or no, close. I, no. Yeah,
1: I, I think I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and and look, I, you know me, I'm 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 long on America. I think we can can see our way out of this. I think that we shouldn't forget that when we were faced with Trump, uh, narrow the victory. Uh, may have been it it was a victory for Joe Biden the ninjas have confirmed it uh and and that you know we can build a big broad pro democracy coalition over time to kind of hold off this dangerous version of the republican party um but there's a lot of different things that have to come together to make that happen you know democrats have to nominate the right people themselves that can appeal to that broad coalition of voters. Um, Joe Biden and the Democrats have to get it together. One of the biggest indicators of whether or not you're going to get just destroyed in a midterm is going to be the approval of the president. There's a long time to go. It's a year out. Joe Biden gets COVID under control, does a couple key things. You know, he can he can he can he can get this back to a manageable place, and then Republicans have to go sort of where I think they want to go anyway, which is full Trump, you know, the Herschel Walkers and Eric Greitens and Josh Mandels. And over time, I think the people who suffer from what I would call kind of the, the Reagan hangover where they have this vision of the Republican party, uh, they consider themselves Republicans and they think Paul Ryan's going to like walk in and save them any minute. Yeah. Um, wow. like they are going to slowly come to the realization that the party is not what they thought it would. And they will continue this demographic um, shift of these, of, of moving away from the party. Um, but I think you've got to do everything you can to help accelerate that shift through messaging and telling people the truth about what's going on, um, and to every day uh, not lose sight of the stakes and get sort of sucked into the little squabbles over over the policy stuff, which I have lots and lots of opinions on. I've always cared about policy, but there is a clear and imminent threat. Uh, you know, I think um, JvL and I were talking about it, it being like, uh, you know. W- people talk about, well, there's a liberalism on the left, and I really believe that. I think there is a, a lot of, um, you know, stuff going on in colleges and universities that is totally problematic, that is illiberal. Sure. Um, but when you do a threat assessment for what is facing us right now, It's like it's like you having cholesterol while you're high cholesterol, but your plane is crashing like the plane crashing is the more imminent threat to pair like to your to your life. See,
0: see, this is something and this is this is painful for me because I have spent years writing whole books about the craziness in higher education. I mean, this is something I wrote a book called Prof or a book called The Hollow Man, A Nation of Victims, all of those things. And you're exactly right. It is, you know, we're watching our democracy being attacked. We're watching an insurrection. We're watching, you know, this 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 mad orange king um, uh, pushing for restoration. And yet, okay, yes, we have some crazy things going on over in the English Literature Department of Oberlin College. So, okay, yes, it is crazy. You know, yes, there are crazy things happening at the University of Southern Arkansas. But what what is the comparative threat? What is the comparative weight that we put on these threats? We can, we can deal with those threats, you know, once we've dealt with the bigger threat. I think that's the problem, Sarah Long. Oh, one, one last question. Um, we, your focus group, you, uh, you, you asked them about what they thought about the Texas abortion law. What did they say? Uh,
1: they, uh, thought it was insane. Um, yeah. So these are swing voters and this strongly. is strongly
0: strongly thought yeah, it was yeah, crazy.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is, again, um, you know, Democrats, you know, Democrats are going to have to get really aggressive. And I think they probably will on this one because it's kind of a gimme um, around sort of the vigilante element because people yeah. don't actually automatically know about that. Uh, like it hasn't, it's not, you know, deeply penetrating the psyche. Like you have to tell people, this is just something I say as somebody who does messaging all the time, that you may be sick of giving a message. But there's lots of people who still haven't heard the message. And the thing that Republicans do is they just never get tired of saying the same things over and over and over again. And that helps them drive narratives in a way that that Democrats, I think, just have never quite gotten a hold of.
0: Is that you pounding the desk in the background? That is me pounding the desk. I I was losing my mind. You're just just saying, this is what you do. You need to pound this and pound this (laughs) and pound this and pound this because it may be old to you, but it is new to them. That's right. That's right. So we haven't even gotten around to talking about Chris Cuomo, which I don't want to do. So, Well, we can talk about my podcast. We have been. See, we have been talking about your podcast because in your podcast, people listen. First of all, Amy Walter is always somebody whose opinion needs to value. But I was really struck by listening to the the kind of the unsuspectable takes of, of many of these voters that uh, that they were so squishy on the spending things. But the passion on the abortion issue and the vigilante aspect really sort of jumped out at me. And I I would strongly urge people to listen to that because that was, I, I actually had to go back and replay that because you got real passion from those folks going, no, nuts, no, absolutely not on that. And if Democrats would understand, you know, because they're all focused on, no, we must spend $6 trillion on various things that nobody understands, uh, as opposed to, guys, you got, you have, you have your own wedge issue right the freak there.
1: It's right there. I mean, and that, the, the thing about, that's the thing about messaging wars, right? It's, there's a reason they call them sort of wedge issues. Um, but you've got to, you've got to focus on where the, the, it's about what's top of mind for voters, right it's about how they prioritize things in in their in their mind um i will tell you I, ju- I would just one note of caution um i think i think the abortion laws with the vigilante part is a key to establishing what i think is the most important broad narrative which that the republican party has gotten too extreme to govern right. which is what i think democrats need to be u- using that as a as a as an example of a broader narrative that they need to make clear um because Republicans are going to go ahead and go back to some bread and butter issues over spending and taxes, Uh, and in the midterms, when it is a referendum on who's in office, uh, that can be very, very powerful.
0: No, I think that's exactly right, and that's one of the ways to nationalize this election. I talked about this uh, on yesterday's podcast. Uh, The Republicans know that they they have to nationalize the election. Democrats need to figure this out. Democrats also need to realize it's not 1935 anymore. So that's right. Those those would be two things as a takeaway on what seems kind of a bright Friday. Okay, so we started off kind of upbeat. I'm not sure that we kept the kept the upbeat tone throughout the entire podcast, but I I, I have to say, as soon as I get off the podcast, I'm just going to immerse myself in reading all the commentary about the cyber ninjas. I just, I just <laughs> want, I, I, this is a story I have to tell you, I'm going to wallow in. Without any apology whatsoever, I'm going to wallow in this for a while.
1: Well, you enjoy that, Charlie. Sounds like a nice day.
0: And you enjoy your weekend, Sarah Longwell. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Your podcast is now called The Focus Group. The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, which was just spiking like crazy on Apple Podcasts this week.
1: Uh it was. It debuted at number twelve. Uh it's you know, been been staying at the top of the charts. And I'll I'll just ask as you do sometimes for your podcast. You know, Charlie, I went and looked, uh, because now I've been in like the back end. Your podcast, you may you may know this. It's a monster, man. Uh, the number mm-hmm. of reviews that you have, uh, like thousands of people have reviewed your podcast. I need people to go review my podcast. Your numbers uh are just uh just incredible. Mm-hmm. Just incredible.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, if you like the podcast, please leave a positive comment. And if you don't, well, you know, find something else to do with your time, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, all right. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast, the weekend Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again.